Amen. That's one of the many ministries that quietly unfold here every day of the week, and your prayers and your support make that kind of ministry possible. And I think those are the kind of ministries Jesus gets excited about. Now, before we look into the word for this weekend, let me share where we are on our next-gen faith pledges. Last weekend, I didn't anticipate everybody would be ready. I understand human nature. I've been told my primary spiritual gift is the gift of procrastination. <laughs> so I didn't expect that all of our cards would come in. I expected maybe about a third, and that's exactly what came in. A third of our congregation submitted their faith pledges last weekend, but that first third who submitted their pledges have already covered 40% of the goal, almost $4.4 million. So we are off to a great, great start. But as we saw in Haggai two weeks ago, a great start is just that, a great start. It's not a finish. So if you're ready this weekend, we want to encourage you at the end of the service through our regular giving to place your card in the basket so that we can know of your faith commitment as well. And again, you've got the rest of the month of June, but unless you want me praying fervently day and night, get them in sooner rather than later, all right? And then I can move on to some other things. Let me share with you yet another testimony because every week, unsolicited, I receive exciting testimonies from people whose lives are being shaped by this experience. This week's testimony came in the way of an email from a single mom with three children who by her own admission often runs out of money before she runs out of month. But she is so excited about being a part of something that will touch people's lives for generations. So she was deeply disappointed when an out-of-town work assignment kept her from being here last week to turn in her card. She watched it on live streaming and just really wished she could be here. Well, she's been seeking the Lord as to what she should do because she said, I wanted to hear it from God. I didn't want it to come from me. And God laid an amount on her heart. And it was a significant faith stretch, but she embraced it. Two days later, an employer gave her a totally unexpected bonus that was three times the amount that she pledged. She was so excited when she got back into town, rather than going home immediately, she came to ACAC immediately so that she could turn in her card and her first installment of paying her pledge and she said I have to apologize all I had was Disney princess checks and I put it on that as if we care what's on the check <laughs> but the best part of all was she said I have always struggled with believing God for my needs and this experience has already changed that now I know she said that God will take care of anything and everything I need. And see, that's what we've been aiming for, more than new facilities, deeper faith, so that we're positioned to serve the Lord well. Well, I'll keep sharing the testimony as they keep coming in. Today we're going to return to our study of the not-so-minor prophets. 
If my voice cracks a bit, you'll forgive me. I had some allergy issues yesterday and then spoke for a solid hour at Man Up to a room full of men talking to them about spiritual warfare, and I fried my vocal cords. I woke up this morning ready to do my best Barry White impersonation. <laughs> I mean, I was way down there. So if the voice cracks a little bit, you be gracious with me. Two weeks ago, we considered the message of the prophet Haggai. And you'll remember he was addressing 50,000 Jewish men and women who had returned from exile to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But after a good start, the project stalled. And he was sent to remind them that they needed to get out of their fear, out of their discouragement, out of their apathy, and out of their selfishness and complete the task that God had entrusted to them. And he only needed two chapters to cover that topic. Now today, we're going to consider a contemporary of Haggai. They ministered at the same time they knew one another. His name was Zechariah. He addressed the same people. He touched on the same issues. But he took 14 chapters to do it, making him the longest of all the minor prophets. Now, in fairness, the length of his writing wasn't because he repeated himself or because he loved the sound of his own voice or because he just couldn't focus. The reason for the greater length of his book is the fact that God gave him far greater topics that he was to cover. Haggai addressed the temple and little else. Zechariah addressed the restoration of the temple, and then he addressed the future all the way out to the second coming of Jesus. And he did that thousands of years ago. He addressed the coming Messiah, the Messiah's rejection and death, the world's rebellion against God, the future suffering of Israel, the judgment of the unbelieving, Jesus' second coming, the spiritual restoration of Israel, the deliverance of the church, and Jesus' ultimate triumph over anything that would threaten his kingdom and his creation. Zechariah literally outlined history for thousands of years to come, and many of his prophecies still have not been fulfilled. So given that assignment, you can understand why he needed 14 chapters. Given that assignment, 14 chapters is like a scriptural version of Cliff's Notes. Further complicating Zechariah's writing was the fact that human language can't capture God's future. Remember, he was writing several thousand years ago about things some of which still haven't happened. How could his language ever fully and adequately capture our modern world? It couldn't. And so for that reason, after a brief introduction that is part history lesson and part call to repentance, the rest of the book of Zechariah is all visions and symbolism. And those can be hard to interpret. In fact, Zechariah is considered to be the hardest to interpret book of the entire Old Testament. And some would suggest it may be the hardest to interpret book in all of Scripture, maybe only rivaled by Revelation. 
So, why are we going to try? Because the Spirit wrote it. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit wants us to understand it. And difficult is not impossible. Zechariah can be clearly understood. And to launch us into our study, I want to read two verses from Zechariah that will frame our consideration. The first one is probably familiar, Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You remember he was in charge of the project. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The second verse is less familiar, but maybe you've heard it, Zechariah 4.10. God asks the rhetorical question, who has despised the day of small things? Today, I want to speak to you about remembering the big picture. My title is Remember the Big Picture. I want you to say it with me and emphasize the word big. Remember the big picture. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to accurately speak your truth and echo your heart. By your Spirit, enable us to understand what you're saying to us and help us to respond with faith. We pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his great name. Amen. And amen. And as we listen for God's voice together today, may the Lord be with you. Five weeks ago, we were studying the prophet Zephaniah, not to be confused with Zechariah. And at that time, I suggested that God's revelation of the future is like a lens. It's the lens through which we can accurately interpret the present. Followers of Christ need to know where God is going in human history if they're going to be able to accurately interpret the moment in which they live. If you're going to be able to discern spiritual lies, to detect demonic activity, to follow God in confidence and hold on to sound truth, you must have a grasp of the big picture. Now, Zechariah would reinforce what Zephaniah said, but he took things a step further. As he looked far down the corridors of time, Zechariah reminded us that God's revelation of the future is the lens that helps us remain confident in the present because it corrects our vision. When our challenges appear large, and our resources and efforts appear small. When it feels like the odds are against you, grasping the big picture will help you hold on to your confidence. And the people in Jerusalem, when Haggai and Zechariah were ministering to them, knew what it was to be in a place where the odds were stacked against them. They were few in number, just 50,000 surrounded by hostile nations. Their enemies were many. Their friends were few. They faced unrelenting opposition. Many of them were spiritually compromised. And those who weren't apathetic were discouraged. Vegas wasn't even giving odds on their chance of success. 
But those who remember the big picture know that things aren't always as they appear. In that first text I read from Zechariah, he reminded us that God's opposition enjoys greater numbers. Believers are a minority in the world. But God's church possesses greater resources because God's church possesses God's spirit. We have the spirit of God who assisted in the creation of the world. We have the spirit of God living within us. And God's spirit is infinitely greater than the might of humanity and the power of humanity. But those who put their trust in human ability can't discern the work of the Holy Spirit. So when they appraise how things are going in the world, they make false appraisals. And they grasp onto false confidence. But those of us who remember the big picture remember that what God's opponents interpret as momentum toward God's final defeat is actually momentum toward God's final victory. See, there are a lot of people in this world, a lot of people in our culture, who are predicting the end, the demise of the Christian faith. They said, we've learned too much. We've come too far. We don't need the archaic restraints of Christian faith. We don't need the so-called gospel. And they're confidently predicting the end of the church. And for them, it can't happen soon enough. So it appears like there's momentum towards God's defeat. But it's actually momentum towards God's victory. Because God makes his enemies serve his purposes. These efforts to run God out of his own creation, they haven't taken God by surprise. He prophesied them long ago in explicit detail by prophets and through prophets who couldn't possibly have imagined the world in which we live. And all of those prophecies make it clear that the efforts of God's opponents to evict him from the universe he created will end with their eviction from the universe that he will one day gloriously restore. You say, how are people trying to evict God from the universe he created? Simple, by either denying his existence or denying his creation. I mean, almost everywhere evolution is taught as a fact, even though it is lousy science even though it is scholarship in service to unbelief. It's taught as fact. And many people now just assume there is no God. And, and, and we're here because of blind, unthinking forces and chance. All of that is an effort to evict God from the universe he created. But it isn't going to work. God will have his way. And once he has his way, those who desire a world without God will see God grant them their desires. There's an inside of heaven. There's an outside of heaven. Revelation makes that clear. And to those who don't want him, God will say, have it your way. I'll give you just what you want, an eternal existence without my presence. 
Now, Zechariah didn't know that the time, the interval between the day he wrote and God's final triumph would be thousands of years. But despite that, he had learned enough to recognize this important principle. The initial chapters of God's work often appear to contradict his promised ending. And that's not only true on a macro scale. That's true on a micro scale. If God has promised you something, if you notice, sometimes immediately after you hear God's promise and you embrace God's promise, the next thing that happens seems to contradict the promise. (laughs) Anybody who's ever followed God has been there. Zechariah learned that the world's Messiah would be rejected and murdered. Imagine his shock. He learned further that his beloved nation Israel would one day be miraculously restored, but then greatly deceived, cruelly betrayed, and intensely persecuted. He learned that God's people that we now know as the church would also be persecuted. And he learned that the day is coming when evil will believe it has won the war and it will claim the victory. And all that led Zechariah to realize that God's eventual victories often have their beginnings in his apparent defeat. Now, a simple example to make that principle clear, the cross. The cross appeared to be the defeat of God and God's purposes. But it was actually the beginning of God's victory in his universe. You see, what appears to be God's defeat is actually God's plan. And it's the defeat of everything that opposes him. God can make his enemies serve his purposes. Those who crucified Christ were serving God's purposes. And that's another reason why we need to remember the big picture. If we don't, we may allow what appears to be God's defeat to defeat our own faith and our own confidence. Now, thankfully, God showed Zechariah more than the bitter days that were ahead. He showed Zechariah the best days ever. Because Zechariah learned a time is coming when history will change in a nanosecond without any further warning. At the second coming of Christ, everything will change in an instant. And Zechariah learned that the evil that laid the foundation for the permanent removal of God will find it has laid the foundation for its own permanent removal from the world. What the world intends for evil, God is going to use it for his ultimate good. Jesus will reclaim what is rightfully his because he created the world and he holds it together by the word of his power. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And when he returns, he's going to lovingly rule over it and restore it for eternity with no further interruptions. Now, Zechariah's contemporaries in Jerusalem, they needed that big picture. They needed that reminder because under Zerubbabel, their efforts seemed so pitiful. And I suggest that's why God spoke through the prophet and said, 
Who has despised the day of small things? What they were doing appeared to be small. And that word despise not only means to hate something, it means to devalue something. It means you not only hate it, but you don't think there's much to it. And God knew that a lot of his enemies in the surrounding nations looked at what was happening with 50,000 people in Jerusalem, and they hated it, and they mocked it, and they thought it didn't amount to a hill of beans. But those who have never grasped God's picture will always mock his people's efforts. But their mockery can't defeat our efforts. It can only affirm them. Because if you hold on to the big picture, the opposition of the world will unwittingly remind you that you are on the right road. You're following Jesus. The world mocked him. They'll mock you. Rome thought he didn't amount to a hill of beans. The world will think we don't amount to a hill of beans. Jesus said, they didn't treat me particularly well. They're not going to treat you any better. Okay. So the mockery of the world can just be used to affirm, I'm following Jesus, because they mocked him as well. You see, God often calls his people to walk where he walks. That's a part of following Jesus. And Zechariah learned that truth the hard way. In response to his preaching, there was a very brief uptick in devotion to God, but it didn't last, and the people slid back into apathy and selfishness and disobedience. And when they did, they laid hold of the prophet Zechariah, and they murdered him. Between the temple and the altar, they murdered Zechariah. How do we know that? In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells us that. And the prophet who had prophesied the future rejection and murder of the Messiah symbolized what was to come through his own life experience. And like Jesus, he died at the hands of the very people he had come to serve and hoped to save. Zechariah became a miniature version of Jesus long before Jesus. Because when you follow God, sometimes you'll have to walk where God walks. Now, I want to say that a journey into the world of Zechariah isn't a journey into ancient, irrelevant, alien territory. It is a pilgrimage into the world of our spiritual ancestors. Because you and I are God's current remnant in the world. The majority of the world rejects Jesus. Scripture says the path that leads to destruction is broad. If you walk there, you'll have lots of company. The path that leads to eternal life is narrow. Only a minority find it. So we are God's minority in the world. We are God's remnant. As such, you don't need me to tell you we face unrelenting opposition, continual mockery, and escalating hostility. Our enemies are many. Our friends are few. Many Christians are spiritually compromised. And our attempts to combat Satan's counterfeit narrative of human existence, what I call the anti-genesis, that challenges everything from creation to gender, our efforts 
to resist that appears so small. It, it feels like we're trying to hold back a tsunami with a sheet of plywood. Our opposition clearly enjoys greater numbers, and they appear to possess greater resources and greater momentum. Those who reject Christ effectively control the realm of politics, science, education, finance, the arts, entertainment, and media, and they use them all to preach their anti-gospel. What do we have? Local congregations. Small things that the world despises. For every preacher of the gospel who speaks to hundreds, godless celebrities speak to millions. Those who preach the word declare God's love for humanity and his hatred of evil. Those on the other side preach humanity's love of itself and its hatred for God. But they have bigger audiences and greater means of reaching broader audiences. And so Zechariah is very timely. Zechariah reminds us that those who anticipate God's promised future must learn to sustain their confidence in the interval between the revelation of that future and the realization of that future. In essence, as followers of Jesus, you and I have to learn how to live in the middle. I, I, I was tempted to title the teaching, Living in the Middle. One of my favorite older preachers long gone was Vance Havner, and he liked to say, you and I live in the great until, until Jesus returns. We live in the middle. And Zechariah reminds us living in the middle isn't easy. The middle is not the fun part. The fun part is the beginning when the vision's new and exciting and hopeful and stimulating. The exciting part is the end. When the vision's been accomplished, the results are seen and celebrated, the sacrifices are recognized and honored, and the party is in full swing. But the middle? The middle is a time of hard work. The middle is a time of tough questions. Lord, in light of who you are and where you're taking us, why is this in my life? The middle is a time of frequent discouragement. You can grow tired in the middle. You can get distracted in the middle. You can get caught up in other things in the middle. You can shift your focus to things that aren't important but feel urgent when you're in the middle. You can even question God's faithfulness in the middle. You can question the vision in the middle. You can question the prophecy in the middle. Lord, where are you? Remember, Jesus hadn't been gone more than 40 or 50 years, and they were already saying, he hasn't come back yet. What's up with that? Now we're thousands of years out. Well, what does the word say? Just as he came the first time, right on time, he will come the second time. And the only reason he's waiting is because in his patience, he wants as many as possible to come to faith. 
You know, if you're in this room and you've never received Jesus, he's withholding his second coming so that you have opportunity. Think of that. Think of that. You say, would God care about me? He's holding the whole future at bay so that you have opportunity. Zechariah reminds us it's tough to live in the middle. And if you've got to hold on to your confidence, and if you've got to continue the work God has called you to, you have to remember the big picture. Because let me remind you, two seconds after Jesus returns, everything you're concerned about now will no longer be a concern. Everything you're afraid of now will no longer bring fear. Everything you're worried about now will no longer produce worry. And all the stuff that you felt spelled your defeat will be proven to be false advertising and fake news. But that's two seconds after. We're still living in the middle. So I agree with the brother who suggested maybe Zechariah's task was to set the stage for Jesus' later instruction about how we ought to pray. Because Jesus said, when you pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, who prays for the kingdom to come? Those who remember the big picture. Who prays for God's will to be done? Those who remember the big picture. Those who not only look at what's right in front of them, but those who look at what God has promised for his great forever. Remember the big picture. It will help you keep your confidence. Let me ask her a question that I'm often asked. Pastor, why did God do it this way? I mean, when Satan and a third of the hosts of heaven rebelled despite having seen God's glory, why didn't God just... Whack them, mafia style, and, and be done with it, right? I mean, and God could have whacked them. Right? Why let all this go on? Let me give you my answers. They're not inspired. They're not worth the paper they'd be written on. It's just my opinion. My first answer to that, God's perfect in his wisdom. If there was a better way, he would have known it. God's perfect in his power. If there was a better way, he could have pulled it off. God's perfect in his love. And if there was a better way and he could pull it off, he would have done it. So I have to first of all assume because God is who he says he is, this is the best way this could have played out, even though I might struggle to understand it. But let me suggest why it might be the better way. You remember Shakespeare said all the world's a stage? I think he touched on spiritual truth without realizing it. Remember, those who rebelled against God, Satan and a third of the host of heaven, were born into a perfect environment. Heaven. They saw the glory of God. They didn't have to speculate if God exists. They saw him. And yet... They entertained the lie that they could do a better job than him and rebel. Now, if God had just whacked them, what would prevent 
another Lucifer from arising, another host from arising and saying, well, we think we could do better. So how did God make sure that would never happen again? Basically, in human history, I believe God said, Satan, knock yourself out. You, you say you're better equipped to rule the creation than I am? Well, let's see what you can do, dude. Come on, you're, you're all talk. Let's see what you can do. So God's given him thousands of years. What's he been able to do? Nothing! He can't unite people. He leads people to kill one another. He can't rule. He is proving his incompetency every day that we live. And God keeps saying to the angels of heaven, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. And the next time somebody suggests somebody can do it better than me, remember that. And I think that will ensure that this will never, never happen again. Can I prove that? No, I told you, it's my theory. And with that, let's close. I mentioned earlier that Jesus is withholding his coming so that more can get into the kingdom. And if you've never taken Jesus as your Savior, and that simple truth set off a reaction in your heart, that reaction didn't come from me. That was God touching you and letting you know you're one of those he's waiting on. And if that was your experience today, I, I would encourage you right where you are in the quietness of your heart where God knows your every thought, ask Jesus to become your Savior and your Lord. You can unpack what that means later. He'll help you. But just say, Lord, I'm convinced I need Jesus as my Savior to save me from my sin and my empty existence and my life without my Creator. Grant me that new birth and make me your child. And if you pray that, trust me, God's on record. He will rush in. He will rush in and change your eternal destiny. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us the big picture. We don't have to wonder, how's it all going to end? We know how it's going to end in a glorious beginning. Help us to hold on to that and remain and retain our confidence I pray in Jesus' name, amen. When you stand at the intersection of faith and culture this week, the culture will say, we're winning the war, we're doing away with God. Jesus will say, not so fast. I'm making my enemies serve my purposes. I'm coming back, hold on. God bless you.